First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning after Halloween of 1975, Cedar Falls, Iowa would have been alive with people harvesting crops for the fall season. That was, with the exception of 600 acres of corn that were sitting unpicked on the farm of the Mark family. The farm had been in the family for decades and a neighbor noticed that it was too quiet that morning. Someone should have been in the field and the corn dryer should have been running, but nobody was around and the power to the farm had been shut off. Inside the farmhouse, it was discovered that the entire family had been murdered, including the couple's two young children. Nobody in the area had any idea who would have wanted such a beloved family dead, and it wasn't until authorities started looking outside of the state that they came up with a suspect. This is Monsters. In May of 1975, Wayne Mark was preparing to begin chemotherapy. His cancer was terminal, but the chemo might give him a few more months, maybe even years. He was only just entering his 60s, and he'd beaten cancer before, so despite the doctor's certainty that he was nearing the end, some of his family were even hoping for a miracle. Some of his children and grandchildren had moved away by then, and he was reaching out to let everybody know. He and his wife Dorothy had four sons. Richard, the eldest, had lived up in Canada and had become a minister. Jerry, the second oldest, had ended up in California, and though he graduated from law school, he was going through a bit of a carefree hippie phase. He had given Wayne two granddaughters that he loved dearly. His younger two sons, Tom and Leslie, still lived near Cedar Falls, Iowa, just a short drive from Wayne and Dorothy. Tom had been a charismatic and creative boy growing up, but had developed schizophrenia in his 20s and was deteriorating. Wayne still found himself very much in the caregiver role as the family was having to make decisions on if Tom needed to be institutionalized. Les, on the other hand, was taking on more responsibility and even helping out with Tom as Wayne's health declined. Les had given Wayne and Dorothy two grandchildren, five-year-old Julie and one-year-old Jeff. Les had made Wayne proud, and he and his wife Georgine were even preparing to take over the family business. Wayne had initially thought Jerry might be the one to take over when he got too old, since when he was young, Jerry loved helping out around the farm. As he grew up, he'd even helped with planning new land additions. 
He'd been the one to convince his father to give Les a chance in the family business and persuaded him to let Les buy a serious stake before he had a lot of that experience. But as Jerry got older, he became a bit flighty in what he wanted. He'd help out on the farm a bit, but he always slept in later or stopped work earlier than Wayne and Les. So Wayne began preparing Les to take over and Jerry found his own path. Jerry's path had taken him to Berkeley, California, and he was working odd jobs and struggling to make ends meet. Wayne wanted to see his granddaughters before he started chemo and became too sick to have fun with them, so he paid for plane tickets for Jerry and the girls. Jerry was divorcing his wife Rebecca by then, but had already found a new girlfriend before the divorce was finalized, which his family did not quite approve of. They didn't buy his girlfriend a plane ticket, but when Jerry got her her own, they didn't object. Her name was Marilyn Sue Forrest, and she went by Mimi. The visit was tense. Wayne wanted to get some things squared away in his will before he got too sick, so the family spent a lot of time discussing the farm, the family real estate business, and generally who would get what. At one point, there was a serious argument, and everyone who later talked about the argument would give a slightly different account of what had happened. Jerry would later claim that the argument was all about Tom. Tom had been able to do factory work or odd jobs on and off since his illness hit, but that year he'd started spiraling. He was living in a hotel, spending all of his money getting drunk at the bar, and would periodically forget to put gas in his car and then just walk away, leaving it on the side of the road to get ticketed. The family was leaning toward having Tom institutionalized, but Jerry wanted to try and find out if they could cure him. He suggested trying some experimental and rather expensive treatments, but didn't seem to quite grasp that those treatments might not work. In his will, Wayne had set aside an equal cash amount for each brother, and Jerry thought it was unfair that Tom didn't have more set aside due to his illness. Les did not want to hear it and thought everything should be equal. Plus, he was already helping to take care of Tom anyway, and Jerry was just trying to make decisions without actually doing anything. Dorothy later said, quote, They both yelled at each other, but Les yelled the loudest. It was one of the few times that Les yelled the loudest. Alga Forrest, Mimi's ex-husband, gave the most controversial account of that argument. Many people would later quote his version of events, but it's worth noting that he and Jerry had good reason to hate each other. Alga and Jerry had been friends for a time. Jerry had moved next door to Alga and Mimi when he and his ex-wife Rebecca first moved out to California in 1974. The couples became fast friends. Then Jerry told Rebecca it was over, he was done with their marriage. Less than a month later, Mimi told Alga the same thing and didn't really offer him an explanation. Then, Jerry and Mimi got an apartment together before either divorce was finalized and Alga eventually realized what had happened. So, with that backstory in mind, here is Alga's account of that argument. He claimed that Jerry had described it in detail to him when they were still friends. Alga said Jerry seemed bitter about his entire family. He made no mention of the arguments during that visit being about Tom. Rather, he said Jerry was furious that he wasn't being given a stake in the family farm in the will. He said that his father and little brother had screwed him out of the family farm and that he would never forgive them and even went so far as to say that when Wayne died, he was going to piss on his grave. A more measured account of that argument was later given by Georgine's father, George Colthurst. He claimed that the argument was also centered around Jerry being bitter that he was being cut out of the family business in the will, which Jerry tried to claim never happened. 
George said Wayne told Jerry that Les and Georgine had spent years learning the trade of farming and had taken out a loan to upgrade the family farm. They had a personal stake in the property that none of the other brothers had. Wayne told Jerry that he had a good education and that he should go make something of himself. Whatever really transpired, things settled down after Jerry went back to California. Wayne and Dorothy's farm operation was composed of a handful of farms of various sizes. One of the smaller ones was called Cedar Mark and it was where Georgine and Les had been living and working to learn the family business. Wayne and Dorothy had been living in the historic family homestead on a slightly larger farm of about 600 acres. Their entire real estate and farm business was estimated to be worth a few million dollars back in 1975. It was a huge operation, but they were growing too old to be in charge of it. Additionally, the family house had fallen into a bit of disrepair in their old age. It was the house they'd raised their kids in, and they had a lot of memories there. Dorothy would later recall that when her boys were in high school and college, she would wake up in the morning and come downstairs to find various teenagers and college kids letting themselves in for breakfast. In a town like that, everyone gave their friends key copies without a second thought. But with Wayne's health failing, they wanted to move somewhere more manageable, and more than that, they felt Les and Georgine were ready to truly take on the family business. They picked out a house just a few miles north that was smaller but still had a garden for Wayne to work in if he wanted. They moved out in September, and Les and Georgine spent a bit of time fixing up the house before moving into the family home at the beginning of October. Processing the fall harvest so soon after a move was exhausting. Clark Renner, a neighbor who lived nearby, would help out the Mark family in exchange for help on his farm. They'd dry their corn together and lend a hand when needed. Les's uncle Victor would also help out occasionally in Wayne's absence. The Marks had an excellent support system and knew all of their neighbors well, and in a farming community, everyone pulled together during harvest. By the end of October, they were in the thick of it. Les was hardly sleeping, but glad to be stepping into his father's shoes. Georgine was helping out where she could, focusing on decorating and updating the house, taking a bit of a break from her usual volunteer work to focus on her family. The end of October also brought about some fence mending with the family's personal issues. Les and Jerry had talked a bit over the phone and done whatever apologizing needed to be done about the argument in May, but neither one had been writing as much as they usually did. The two had been inseparable when they were young and had both been best man at each other's weddings, but they'd grown apart in the last few years. On October 27th, Jerry sent Les a letter asking if he would pretend Jerry worked at the farm more recently and in a more involved capacity than he actually had because he was having trouble job hunting. He wanted Les to be a reference for him. Les responded on the 29th saying he'd help Jerry however he could. He also took the chance to catch up. He told Jerry he'd enjoyed meeting Mimi and he hoped he could meet her again under a less intense visit. He said that Julie was growing up and was as sweet as could be, but that little Jeff had the devil in him and it was always up to something. Jeff was getting close to his second birthday, but already seemed to have hit the terrible twos. Les told him that they were settling in after the move and that Dorothy and Wayne were settling into their house as well. He also updated him on Tom, assuring him he was keeping an eye on him and taking care of him. Les said he would make an effort to write more, acknowledging that they hadn't been talking as much as they used to. 
When Halloween rolled around, Julie wanted to go trick-or-treating, but Les and Georgine were just too exhausted, so they told her they'd throw their own Halloween party. Clark Renner came by to make plans for the next day. Clark had 3,000 acres of his own, and he and Les joked about how they were going to get all the picking done the next day. Clark left, and the Marks went to go visit their neighbors Dennis and Barbara Wolf, who gave their kids some candy. That was just after 8 p.m., and they stayed for around an hour. When the family got home, they made some chocolate pudding and spent time with the kids. Victor came to join them, helped out with some late-night work, and wished the kids a happy Halloween. They sent the kids to bed around 10 o'clock, and Victor and Les went out to go pick corn until about 1 a.m. Les said he was going to try to get up at 5 a.m. to keep working. Hours later, Clark Renner tried to get a hold of Les at around 7 a.m. He gave him an hour or so to call back and tried him a few more times, but when Les didn't pick up, he decided to head over and see what was going on. Clark went straight to the corn dryer, but Les wasn't in the barn, and even stranger still, the dryer wasn't running. It was supposed to be running all night. Clark decided that he'd get the dryer situated and then wait for Les to finish whatever he was doing, but he discovered the power to the barn was disconnected, so he went to the family's house to check on them. Clark was planning on going up to the house and yelling outside the window that Les was too busy laying in bed with his wife to help with anything, but when he spotted a broken window, he knew something was wrong. He didn't hear any noise coming from the house either, which was strange. He knew the back door had a spare key nearby, but he didn't want to investigate alone. It looked like someone had just thrown a potted fern from the porch into the kitchen during some Halloween trickery, but he still had a bad feeling. He decided to go check in with Dorothy and Wayne, thinking perhaps the family had gone there since the power was out, but Les and his family weren't there. Dorothy decided to come with Clark to investigate, and Wayne came along too with the plan to wait in the car as he was feeling sick. Dorothy went into the house and called out, but didn't get an answer. During a later interview, Dorothy was asked if she thought anything might have been wrong at that point. To that, she responded that they were Midwest farm people and she had no reason to expect anything bad. She found Les and Georgine first. She saw a puddle of blood coming out from behind their bedroom door. She tried to shove the door open, but could only get it open far enough to stick her head in. Georgine had been wearing a light blue nightgown and Dorothy could clearly see a bullet wound in her chest. She saw Les was bloody as well, but she didn't look as closely at him because she was already feeling sick. She says she didn't see the bullet wounds as clearly on Les, but knew that if someone had been able to shoot Georgine, they would have had to kill Les first. Dorothy told Clark to go downstairs and turn the circuit breaker on, and he said, quote, Dorothy, what about the kids? Dorothy ran upstairs and found Julie, clearly dead. She went to get Clark next before she could bring herself to go into Jeff's room. The phone was working, it was just the power that was out, and Clark called his wife and told her to get over to the farm because Dorothy needed her. She pulled him away from the phone to go check on Jeff. They could see the bullet wounds on Jeff from a distance as well and didn't get too close. It was apparent it was already too late. The lights were still out. Clark was understandably not thinking clearly and had not yet gone downstairs. They called the sheriff, then went to turn the circuit breaker back on and wait for the authorities. When the breaker was flipped back on, a few lights came on as well as the digital clocks that had all stopped at just after 3 a.m. However, the grandfather clock in the living room had been smashed and the time was stopped at 5 a.m. 
When police got to the scene, they speculated that the killer might have smashed the clock and changed the time to confuse the timeline of events, not thinking about the digital clocks. Now, I need to take a minute to explain how a digital clock worked in the 70s. It wasn't a digital clock you see today that uses lights to display the time. If the power is shut off for one of those clocks, when the power is turned back on, they just reset to midnight. Before modern digital clocks, the number was either displayed on a wheel that spun around or on plates that would flip as the numbers changed. In that situation, the time would pause where the power went out and then resume from the same spot when the power returned. And that concludes our history lesson on clocks from 50 years ago. Because of the sensitive nature of the scene, forensics did not move the bodies until they had been at the scene for a few hours, and police who were looking for clues started to float the idea of a murder-suicide. But when they finally moved the bodies and found no gun under less, they switched gears to homicide. They were able to guess what order the family had been killed in. It appeared that the killer had snuck up on Les and Georgine, but they'd woken up before he could shoot them. The first bullet went into the floor and the second grazed Georgine's side. There was evidence of a struggle in the bedroom. Then it looked like Les and Georgine were forced to kneel on the floor and lie face down with pillows over their heads. The killer then executed them before going upstairs to kill the children. Julie and Jeff were each shot once in the head and once in the heart. There was a pillow near the door of Julie's room indicating she might have heard something and woken up, but she was in her bed when she had been killed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Aside from the broken window and smashed grandfather clock, several drawers had been opened in a poor attempt to make it look as if the killer had broken in to steal something, but nothing was missing. Police guessed the fern on the porch had actually been thrown through the window after the fact to make it look like the killer didn't use the spare key that hung near the back door to sneak in. There were a few cigarette butts in the basement near the furnace that police were hopeful might have been left by the killer. There was also a cigarette butt in Julie's room. David Dutton, the attorney who handled many of the homicide cases in the area, was at the scene along with every available police officer. The sheriff's reserve was called in and dozens of people started combing the farmland for clues. A National Guard helicopter flew over the property to film the scene and surrounding land from above. The search for the killer was the most intensive manhunt that had ever happened in all of Black Hawk County, Iowa's history. Police questioned dozens of people the first few days, but felt no closer to establishing a motive. Lesson Georgine did not have any enemies. Police searched the farm with metal detectors, hoping to find the murder weapon. They had dozens of hits, with almost all ending up being old beer or soda cans. The little evidence they found pointed to someone who'd planned the slayings carefully. Perhaps the most damning clue was an old junction box on the land. Up until a few months prior, that box had controlled the phone lines and electricity for the Mark family home. The killer had cut the lines, which now only went to the neighbor's house. One searcher who was looking near the junction box lost his footing and slipped into a shallow hole in a ditch. When he slipped, he spotted two unspent bullets that the killer had likely lost when he slipped into the same hole. 
Four miles south of the farm, the killer had also shot five bullets into a traffic light at the intersection of Highway 20 and Union Road. Union Road was the road the family lived on. The bullets themselves were very unique, being somewhat antiquated. They were bought and sold very rarely, so police were feeling hopeful they might have found something useful. Within those first few days, given how much the killer knew about the farm, police had to consider the possibility it may have been someone who knew the family, and they started to investigate the other Mark brothers. They ruled out Richard because he lived out of the country. They brought Tom in for questioning, concerned that his mental illness could certainly have made him unstable. But when investigators talked to him, it was immediately clear that he could not have planned something so elaborate. That left Jerry, and authorities found him suspicious because no one had been able to get a hold of him until November 2nd. He'd been on some kind of vague road trip to find himself. Even more concerning, they'd already gotten a call that Jerry was someone they should look into. Mimi's father had called the authorities to say that it was curious that Jerry had had a gun stolen just days before the murder, and that they were having trouble locating him. He didn't outright accuse him, just told investigators they should look into things. Police decided to wait until after the funeral to talk to Jerry. He arrived home in Berkeley on the 2nd, and then he and Mimi flew back to Iowa. The Mark family was laid to rest at Trinity United Methodist Church on November 4th. Les had been only 25 and Georgine 23. Nearly 1,000 people came out to pay their respects. There were so many mourners that they filled the church to capacity, and some people even waited on the nearby streets for a chance to come in and say their goodbyes. Flower bouquets were brought in by over 100 people and spilled out over the coffins. Richard, the eldest brother, delivered the eulogy. He said their family had been getting phone calls from all across the country from people they didn't even know who wanted to offer condolences and prayers and that they appreciated them all. Being a minister, Richard had a way with words. He told the crowd, quote, I like to say something like this, sainthood begins at death. The gifts and great qualities and joyous moments and significant occasions that you and I share, these are the gifts that sustain us at moments and particularly low points that are on our journey in life. He then went on to talk about those moments. He said that he and Les would spend so much time on the phone together that both their wives would get mad about the phone bills. He talked about Julie being a princess. He talked about Georgine pouring so much care into decorating and fixing up their home. He joked that she would spend the family's food money on flowers if she could. He talked about Les's love for the earth and how he was always planning for the future. A future that would never come, in this life anyway. He also asked people to direct their prayers toward the person responsible for the tragedy, asking that they pray God to be merciful. After the service, the police were finally ready to question Jerry and Mimi. The question of how they had come into possession of a gun that was not registered under either of their names came up first. Apparently, it had to do with Mimi's divorce. Jerry had lucked out, as much as one can in a divorce. He hadn't fought Rebecca for custody of the kids, and when he wanted to visit them, it seemed to go smoothly. She didn't seem to be holding it against him how quickly he'd moved on. Mimi's divorce, on the other hand, was ugly. Alga was fighting her on everything and had even supposedly threatened to kill her. So she decided to take a camper from their land as it was under both of their names. She and Jerry sorted through the camper for anything Mimi wanted to keep as Alga was not letting her in the house to get any of her stuff. 
They also decided to look for anything valuable to sell as neither of them were doing great financially. They found, among other things, an old Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver. Mimi said they took all of her stuff out of the trailer, then they gave it back to Alga, but they did not give him his gun back because he'd threatened Mimi with it. Jerry told investigators he'd put the gun in a storage shed when his daughters came to visit and had largely forgotten about it. Apparently, on October 29th, the same day Jerry left for his mysterious road trip, someone had broken the lock on the storage unit and stolen the gun. The trip itself was also of great interest to the investigators because Jerry had conveniently been unreachable both the day before and after the murders. His version of events went as follows. He'd been wanting to go on a trip to the desert to find himself for quite some time, and he'd just only gotten around to it. Wayne had given him some money to buy a new car, but instead he bought a newer Honda motorcycle that was more equipped to handle long-distance driving and harsher weather than his current bike. He also bought a riding suit to insulate him and a radio. He made those purchases at the beginning of October. While Mimi would back up Jerry's claim that he'd been planning that trip for some time, his friends would only later recall him talking about it a few days before he went. On the newer Honda, he had a California plate, but on his old bike, he still had an Iowa plate. Apparently, that plate went missing at the same time as the gun. How convenient. Jerry said he was originally planning on spending the whole trip in the Mojave Desert. He claimed he called Mimi from Kolinga near Bakersfield on the first night of his trip, still in California. He said he found a grassy area to sleep at around 3 a.m. and spent that first night at the edge of the desert. He said he only slept a few hours before a bird chirping by his sleeping bag woke him up and he was on the road again at 6 a.m. He said he drove up through Vegas on a whim and decided to keep going north all the way to Provo, Utah, just south of Salt Lake City. He called Mimi that night and told her he was having a great time and that he was going on a bit of a longer trip than he'd planned. He was supposed to start heading home the next day, but Mimi told him to keep following the road for a few days if he wanted. She later told investigators she'd never heard him sound so happy and carefree. Jerry said he spent the next night near Chapel, Nebraska, just at the western edge of the state. Then he decided he'd gone far enough and he turned around. He told authorities that he had driven nearly 10 hours that day. He had a divorce hearing scheduled for November 2nd and needed to be back home. November 1st was when Jerry was originally supposed to be back home, so he tried to call Mimi that morning, but when she didn't pick up, he called her parents, Evelyn and Russell. Evelyn had time to ask where he was and told him to call home, but since neither of them paid the charges, the call dropped. This would have been back when Jerry was calling from a payphone, and a long-distance call would likely have needed additional funds added after a period of time. Jerry had all kinds of reasons for why he supposedly did not get very far from where he started on November 1st. He said he was pulling off at every exit to try and call Mimi to apologize again for missing a Halloween party she was throwing and to find out what Evelyn seemed so worried about. He said his bike was acting up or that he got turned around. He apparently spent most of the day not making much headway getting home before ending up just two hours away in Cheyenne, Wyoming late the next day. That night, he was worn out from his journey and making bad time, so he decided to try to find someone to haul his bike over the mountains so he could rest up a bit. Jerry had back problems, and the cold made it worse. 
During his interview, investigators learned that Jerry's problems stemmed from a particularly harsh beating Wayne had given him as a child that had broken his tailbone. It had never healed properly, causing lasting pain. Investigators tried to ask Jerry and Mimi both if Jerry still harbored a grudge against his family for that, but he didn't seem to. Mimi only knew about the injury because Jerry had a lump at the base of his back from it. Investigators never really looked into Jerry's childhood much in response to that discovery. Fifty years ago, police would not have found such an incident to be that unusual. To get back to Jerry's story, he met a man named Larry Roch on the night of November 1st who was hauling an empty horse trailer to Seattle. He gave Jerry a ride because he'd never been to Seattle before and Jerry said he could direct him the best way to get over the mountains. Larry took Jerry from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Ogden, Utah before he had to start heading north. The next day, Jerry tried calling in the early afternoon but once again couldn't reach Mimi. Evelyn picked up again and gave Jerry the news that Les and his family had been killed. That was when Russell called the authorities and Jerry made a beeline for home. In questioning both Jerry and Mimi, investigators were extremely suspicious of their story and asked both of them to take a polygraph. Mimi agreed as she thought she didn't have anything to hide, but Jerry refused. Though we know today that polygraphs are not reliable, back in the 70s, authorities thought it was pretty damning when Mimi failed her test. Jerry was becoming uncooperative and police could tell Mimi was nervous and seemed to be hiding something, so they went after her, arresting her for perjury. Jerry, Wayne, and Dorothy were all upset about that and got the family lawyers on it right away, threatening to sue for wrongful imprisonment. Mimi was kept in jail for five days before being released on bond. Then, on November 11th, less than two weeks after the murders, the news broke that Jerry Mark was being arrested for killing his brother's family. The consensus in the papers at the time was that there had to have been some kind of horrible mistake. He was always described as soft-spoken and calm. On the surface, at least, Jerry had spent his life dedicated to others. In school, he'd done charity work, and in college, he'd taken a year off to join the Peace Corps. He'd spent time in Brazil helping impoverished families improve their farms. When he graduated law school, he worked a few different jobs to get his footing before trying to open up his own practice, which was in part dedicated to representing those who could not otherwise afford legal counsel. Sure, his life had gone off the track a bit after that, but even his current hippie phase seemed out of line for someone who would commit murder. No one who knew him could picture Jerry as the kind of monster to kill not only his brother and sister-in-law, but to kill their young children as well. George Colthurst, Georgine's father, did go against the grain, though. He was ready to tell the police what he really thought of Jerry. He said Jerry was serious about becoming a hippie to the point it was concerning. He claimed Jerry had burned his law books and said he would never wear a tie again. He thought the establishment was broken and needed to be rebuilt. George also tried to say that Les and Jerry weren't really all that close, like everyone else had claimed. He said Jerry had always been Dorothy's favorite and Les was Wayne's favorite. He also said that Wayne tried to pit the two brothers against each other to see who was more fit to run the family farm. Jerry was released on bond shortly after his arrest, as his parents were easily able to pay the fees. During the months leading up to the trial, Jerry took classes and Mimi moved in with him and his parents. He also proposed to Mimi, telling her he wanted to marry her as soon as her divorce went through. 
David Dutton, the county attorney who had been at the crime scene on day one, was going to be heading the prosecution, and he tried to put a stop to the marriage. He wanted Mimi to testify for the prosecution, and he thought the marriage was a sham just to keep her off the witness stand. But the local courts overruled him and allowed Mimi and Jerry to get married. They tied the knot on May 6th at Wayne and Dorothy's house just weeks before the trial was set to begin. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The trial started on May 24, 1976, and was held a county over in Woodbury as the case had caught serious media attention and there were too many people in the immediate area who knew the Mark family. The ammunition used in the slayings would be an essential piece of evidence as it matched the kind that would be used in Jerry's missing gun. Though investigators had tried to keep the information under wraps, that was the main reason they'd been able to arrest him and charge him so quickly. The bullets were 38 caliber long Colt ammunition, and it was so rare that police were actually able to visit every store that had ever purchased any. It had only been produced at one factory, so police worked their way through stores near Berkeley first, and found a store about two hours away in Paso Robles who had sold a box of the ammunition on October 20th. Jack McAdonsky was working the counter the day detectives came to the store. He'd also been the one working the counter on October 20th, and he remembered that day in detail. He recalled a man coming in to buy a box of ammunition, and he couldn't recall anyone ever requesting that ammunition before, so the purchase had stuck out in his mind. The purchase was actually the first time anyone had ever bought that particular kind of ammo from that store. The man's driver's license identified him as Jerry Allen Mark, and it was an out-of-state license from Iowa. Jack was also from Iowa and made a bit of small talk about their home state as he didn't meet too many people from there who'd moved to California. However, by the time the trial rolled around, Jack said he couldn't remember the man's face enough to be completely sure it had actually been Jerry Mark. But he did recall the man had matched his license photo at the time. Perhaps part of the reason Jack had trouble identifying Jerry is that after he bought the ammunition, he changed his appearance. He'd been up in Paso Robles because that's where Rebecca and the girls were living, and after he bought the bullets, he went to pick up his daughter from preschool. When he got home, he told Rebecca he wanted to get a new look. She helped him shave his beard and cut and style his hair short. He said it was because he wanted to look more professional for job interviews. The prosecution argued that Jerry shaved his beard and cut his hair so it would be less likely he'd be recognized when he went back to Iowa. One of the defense's main arguments was that no one had seen a motorcycle at the scene of the crime, but several people had seen a suspicious blue car that night. Two neighbors testified they saw a blue car parked on the Mark family land away from the house on Halloween night. Wilbur Murray, who lived nearby, also spotted a blue car. He said it was speeding away from the Mark family farm at around 5 a.m., Larry Huffman also confirmed that sighting, saying he spotted the car at the farm just after sunrise. All four witnesses seemed credible and sure of what they had seen. The defense tried to argue that meant police should be looking for a killer who drove a blue car. 
There was a college party going on nearby that night, so the prosecution argued that the blue car could have been college kids parking somewhere they thought they wouldn't be bothered. In a less convincing argument, the defense tried to pitch the idea that Clark Renner could have been the murderer. They based that on an old argument Clark had had with the Mark family when they had some kind of misunderstanding about a grain transaction. He'd apparently been so upset that he called Victor in the middle of the night and seemed to think whatever had happened may have been Les's fault. Apparently, Clark said he'd kill Les if he ever caught him stealing. That happened sometime in 1974. Clark said that it had not been that serious of an argument and that they'd all apologized and largely forgot about it. The cigarette butts found at the scene matched Jerry's blood type and they were the type he liked to smoke. But the defense argued that there were dozens of people in the house by the time those were collected into evidence. Also, to be fair, there was at least one cigarette butt that a deputy admitted to leaving behind in the house, so that was a very valid point. The defense tried to argue that the hair and fingerprints of someone not related to the family were found at the scene, but the Marks were very social people and they had friends over all the time. The defense did not have a lot of evidence to draw on and mostly tried to hammer home the idea of reasonable doubt. Like many cases that rely on only circumstantial evidence, this is the part where I point out that in order for Jerry to not be the killer, a nearly impossible number of coincidences would have had to have happened. The same type of gun that was used in the murder was stolen from him just days before. Someone who looked like him, who had his driver's license, had purchased the exact type of ammunition that had been used in the murders just days before. He also had magically gotten his driver's license back. If someone else had used his ID, why did he still have his ID? A license plate for the state where the murders occurred was stolen from him, making two items related to the crime having been stolen from him at the same time. A monumental coincidence. Someone with his blood type had smoked the cigarettes he liked near the house around the time of the murders. On top of all of that having coincidentally happened, Jerry also went on a road trip where he couldn't be located for days around the time of the murders. This was in the days before cell phones and GPS, but it turns out that it wasn't actually impossible to find out exactly where Jerry had been on his trip. David Dutton had put together an argument that Jerry had lied about nearly every aspect of his road trip and had been in Cedar Falls at the time of the killings and there was physical evidence on the bike to back that up. The license plate had two screws on each side. Because of the way the motorcycle is set up, one side near the back accumulates significantly more dirt and grease when the chain rubs near it. Jerry's California plate, which he claimed to have never taken off, had one clean screw and one dirty screw on each side, indicating he had taken off and reattached the license plate somewhat recently and in doing so put the screws back in opposite locations. David argued that was because he'd swapped it out for his Iowa plate to be less conspicuous while in his home state. There was also significant wear near the odometer, indicating it had been taken out partially to temporarily disable it. Using dozens of witnesses, David Dutton put together what he claimed was the real timeline of Jerry's trip. Jerry tried to say that on the morning of November 1st, he'd been no more than 50 miles or so into Nebraska, near Chapel, when he decided to turn around. Donald Shearer is a retired state highway patrolman who runs a store about 100 miles or 160 kilometers east of Chapel, and he claimed he saw Mark in his store on Halloween morning. 
He remembered everything that happened that day in vivid detail because his son had passed away and that was the day of his funeral. One man who lived in Chapel did see Mark near the city, but a day before he claimed to have arrived. Jathan Hurd III worked at a truck stop in Williams, Iowa, and he remembered Jerry because he'd snapped at him and been impatient, and also because he'd been traveling late at night at around 4 a.m. Jathan also noticed Jerry had a limp. Numerous witnesses at the funeral had seen Jerry walking around with a limp as well. Two other witnesses who worked at gas stations nearby remembered Jerry simply because the news broke that day about the killings and everything that happened on November 1st stuck out to them. Those witness accounts weren't perfect though. Some of them got Jerry's eye color wrong and others differed on the color of his motorcycle helmet. However, the prosecutor had a smoking gun up his sleeve. Jerry didn't realize that not only can the content of phone calls be recorded, but the location where they were placed can be recorded as well. Investigators had gotten a subpoena for the phone records just one day before they were going to be deleted, and found that for every single phone call Jerry made to Mimi during the trip, he lied about his location. He was smart enough to not make any calls too close to home, but the call the morning of November 1st when he claimed he was recuperating just at the edge of Nebraska showed him 200 miles or 320 kilometers east into the state closer to Iowa. The actual location of each phone call showed he had gotten much further east much more quickly than he'd told Mimi. He would have had more than enough time to get to Cedar Falls and to the edge of Nebraska during Halloween and November 1st. At the closing arguments, the defense tried to emphasize witness testimony being unreliable by picking and choosing the extremes of time windows given by witnesses and the police. For example, he claimed it would have been impossible for Jerry to get to Aurora, Nebraska, 400 miles or 640 kilometers away by 10 a.m. when the murders were committed at 5 a.m. That was ignoring that detectives said the murders were likely committed closer to 3 a.m. and the Aurora witness had given a time window of several hours. The lawyer also tried to tell the jury that if they had any hesitation at all during the debate, that constituted doubt and that they legally had to declare Jerry innocent. David Dutton objected to that, saying that was not how the law worked and the judge upheld his objection. During the prosecution's closing arguments, he told the jury the story of Cain and Abel from the Bible. He talked about how Cain was given the task of farming and Abel the task of raising sheep, and how Cain grew jealous of his brother. He felt like Abel had been given the better life and that God appreciated his sacrifices more, so he killed him and tried to hide it. David's closing speech would go on to give the case its nickname, the Cain and Abel Murders. Dorothy never wavered, at least publicly on her son's innocence. Near the end of the trial, she testified that Jerry loved his brother and he couldn't have possibly been the one who killed him. Dorothy was stoic in times of crises, and this was one of the very rare times she shed tears publicly about the case, as she asked the jury to see her son the way she did. On June 22nd, just a month after the trial had begun, the jury deliberated for less than five hours, and they only took one vote near the end that was already unanimous. Jerry Mark was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Dorothy gasped when the verdict was read. Jerry remained calm. Georgine's mother, Margaret, went up to the assistant prosecutor and kissed him on the cheek. David Dutton chose not to comment to the media afterward, saying the jury verdict said all that needed to be said. The defense did not comment either, but it was because he hadn't been in court that day. 
He said he had important business to attend to in Des Moines and was not there to hear the verdict. Jerry kissed Mimi, then kissed his mother on the cheek and said goodbye. Dorothy went to speak with the media on Jerry's behalf and told them that he was planning for the future and hopefully that further appeals might bring about justice. The investigation and trial still remained one of the most prolific cases in Iowa's history. One year after the murders, on November 27, 1976, Jerry Mark was granted a supervised release to attend his father's funeral. He was sure that when he went back to prison, it would only be a short while until his appeals went through. None of Jerry's appeals have seen any success, and some were denied before they could even go to court. He's threatened hunger strikes and escape attempts. He's told the media about all the theories he has about who the real killer might have been. He's still trying, pointing to either the DNA on the cigarette butts or strangers' fingerprints in the house. But even if these things were to come back with someone else's DNA or prints, neither of those details is what swayed the jury. Being convicted on only circumstantial evidence is difficult. It requires an overwhelming amount of evidence, and between the bullets, the bike, and the phone records, there was more than enough to put Jerry behind bars and keep him there. Also, while in prison, Jerry has gone on to admit that it was actually him that purchased the 38 caliber ammunition in Paso Robles, but still maintains that he's innocent despite having lied to detectives about that purchase. The purchase of the exact same rare ammunition that was used to kill his brother and his family just days later with the gun he owned that was now missing. Right. In 2011, during one of the many times the media would revisit the case, the Colthurst released a victim impact statement. That hadn't been something done back in the 70s, so they decided to release one after the fact to let the public know just how much they missed Georgine and her family. The statement read in part, quote, You stole our privilege of being able to watch our grandchildren grow up and enjoy the many activities that they would have participated in. You stole all of the future family get-togethers, the Christmas celebrations, the birthdays and Thanksgivings that we would have enjoyed had they lived. Jerry Mark, you are the lowest of the scum of the earth. A statement I feel is fitting for a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.